This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osimo, the founder of Kingswood Security and an author on church safety, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner, I'll share my expertise, all be joined by one of my co-hosts, giving you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, join me as we dive into this week's episode and we learn how to plan, prepare, and protect. So in the last episode, Dr. James Densley, co-founder of The Violence Project, spoke about mass shooters being in crisis or suffering from suicidality at the time of carrying out their mass shooting. Now in this episode, we're going to explore the third thing that their research found mass shooters generally have in common. And that third thing is that mass shooters study other mass shooters. They go online, they follow news reports, and try to emulate the attack. But if you haven't listened to part one or part two of this conversation with James, I'd strongly encourage you to go back, take a listen, and follow this series in order. Now, before we dive into the episode, I want to tell you really quickly about the sponsor of this podcast series, Bullis Insurance. Now, Bullis Insurance are based here with me in Minnesota, but serve churches, nonprofits, and companies across America, teaching them how to manage and mitigate risk. Now, I've known Mark Bullis, the owner, for coming up to a decade, and they are my personal insurers of my business. So if you're looking to make sure you have the right coverage or wanting to look insurance in a new way, I'd encourage you to reach out to Mark and the team at Bullis Insurance, as I know they'd be more than happy to serve you and answer any questions that you have, and you'll find their details in the show notes below. So without further ado, let's dive into part three of my conversation with Dr. James Densley, co-founder of The Violence Project. So James, we spoke about experienced childhood trauma, reached an identifiable crisis. Now we're going to look at studied the actions of other mass shooters. So tell us what that looked like. So in the lives of mass shooters, you've reached an identifiable crisis point. You are probably now thinking you don't care whether you live or die. Because this is important. A mass shooting is intended to be a final act. You, you don't perpetrate a mass shooting, put on a disguise, run for the border and try and get away with it. You don't get away with a mass shooting. Law enforcement will intervene. It will probably result in your death on the scene, whether you take your own life or law enforcement takes it for you, or you'll spend the rest of your life in prison. And in some states, the rest of your life in prison will also be on death row because you'll be executed by the state. So a mass shooting is a final act. So if you're in that mind frame of this will be my final act, you are also experiencing great trouble and uncertainty about your place in the world. So what happens is these individuals start to research, is really what it comes down to. They go online and they start to look at how have other people who feel like me, how have they dealt with their problems previously? And it's there that they start to realize that they might be part of something bigger. And unfortunately, that part of something bigger is the phenomena of mass shootings in America, that they've become so routine that there is now a back catalog of mass shootings to look at for, for inspiration. We see these mass shooters see themselves in the lives of the past mass shooters. And then there's a kind of copycat element that then comes with this, which is they relate to those individuals 
And then they start to, in some cases, mimic them as they perpetrate their own shootings. The research that you carried out, and this is going to be, I don't know if it's a stereotype or prejudice that I have in my mind, but your research went back to 1966, you know, so we've got an extensive time here to look at the data. My assumption is saying to me, my common sense is saying that the, the copycat, if you like, was almost further in the future, right? Because in 1966, there wasn't a lot of the press reported. So when you're seeing that they're studying other mass shooters, is your research saying that quite often they were studying the most recent mass killings because a lot of the earlier stuff just wasn't there? Because there's been a big change in social media, James, hasn't there, as to what's been reported? That's a great question, and it's a spot-on observation, really. What we see is almost the kind of watershed moment for this is Columbine. So the Columbine shooting in April 1999 is important for a number of reasons. One, April 1999 is the sort of dawn of the internet era, if you will. Of course, the internet existed before that, so I don't want to mislead readers thinking that there wasn't internet before that. There was. But 1999 is that moment where home computing and internet really starts to take off and it becomes part of everyday life, essentially. At the same time, 1999 is also the height of 24-hour cable news media. So this is the height of CNN, Fox News and others and people getting their news from those outlets. So Columbine becomes this sort of uh, phenomena. It is replayed over and over and over again. Not only that, though, the Columbine shooters themselves left an archive. They left so much fodder for conspiracy theorists to pick up and start to speculate on why this crime occurred and how it occurred that it just kept feeding the cycle. So Columbine becomes this really watershed moment. From that point on, we see increased media coverage and attention of the mass shooting uh, issue. And then it only dials up even more with social media. So once social media comes into the play, you now have the phenomena as well of mass shootings that have been streamed live. Mass shooters that have posted to social media before or during their actual acts of violence, feeding further this phenomena and even giving some people inspiration for kind of fame-seeking motivations. So yeah, this was less of an issue in a kind of pre-internet age uh, and it's much more acute now today. And I'm glad that you ended there, James, because one of the notes I wrote down as you are talking was, what is it that they copy in? Is it, are they, do they sympathize with their causes? Are they copying the style of the attack? You know, everyone wants to be bigger and better than the last person. Uh, what type of things are they copying when they are studying? You know, it's it's a combination of of all the above in some ways. So on the one hand, you have some who are, really just identifying with the shooters. Um, we interviewed a, a school shooter, for example, who, who referenced by name past mass shooters. And then he referenced, you know, these were individuals who were depressed like me, struggling like me. They looked like me. I saw themselves in, in me. You know, that was uh, a real clear, like, uh, emotional connection with the shooter. We had some other cases, though, which were more just kind of inspired by the body count of a particular shooting and, and essentially had set their goal as being, oh, I could beat that and therefore I could get more attention and uh, and become you know more infamous than the last mass shooter. So there was that component to it as well. The other thing that we see sometimes is when mass shootings tend to occur, they might cluster. And that's because 
you see a mass shooting in the news and it maybe tells other people out there that this is a, a thing that you can follow. This might also be particularly uh, the case for ideologically motivated shootings. So if you've got hate, mass supremacy, uh, white supremacy, sorry, or, or, or something like that, feeding into a mass shooting, people want to be, feel like they're part of something bigger. The ideology usually doesn't really matter very much. All it is is something for somebody to kind of hang their hat on and say, look, I'm part of this bigger thing now. Take notice. And that's really where the motivation comes from. And in relation to the study of other mass shooters, were there any people within their backgrounds that had become aware that Simon was spending more time researching mass killings or, or become fascinated? Again, I think of the Charleston mass murderer. You know, one of his friends was African-American. And he talks about hearing him, I think, use the N-word out of a car window to someone, to an African-American lady that would go and pass, you know. So I mean, those type of things, you know, they're leading clues that this person's going down a sort of radical path. And, you know, obviously we know there was a lot of research in sort of white supremacy. So did you see any of these type of behaviours within your research? Yeah, it's interesting. It goes back to this concept of leakage with threat assessment is that the work breadcrumbs, if you will, that, that were being laid. But again, it was one of those situations of maybe people either didn't feel empowered to speak up about it, that they, they themselves felt like that they didn't fully understand the nature of the problem, or that there was this, this uh, missing pieces to the puzzle. So things were being spotted in isolation, but they weren't putting two and two together. But what was really interesting is, particularly for school shooters, this fascination with Columbine, but also sort of uh, neo-Nazi iconography and the history of sort of Adolf Hitler and other individuals from history was also quite common theme that we saw in some of these cases. And so in many ways, that just becomes a very big red flag. I mean, for a start, you shouldn't really be showing a fascination with uh, white supremacist ideas to begin with. But then you combine that with, with a fascination with Columbine People start to take books out the library on these subjects. They start to dive into the dark corners of the internet about it. I think people are noticing, but are not necessarily flagging that as a problem or knowing how to have those conversations to be able to say like, why are you fascinated in that? Is this an opportunity to kind of intervene? It's one of the reasons why I think we really need really good media literacy. So people don't go tumbling down the rabbit hole and become so uh, susceptible to the conspiracy theorists that are out there and and really start to become radicalized in these spaces. And you have the, you know, people that can maybe see some of these behaviors and you also have that human interest fascination. I know obviously, you know, you don't name these mass murderers. There's different news outlets, but I believe, I think the news, they try to, but they find it incredibly difficult because they want, they want the story, don't they? You yeah. Know, so they want the clicks. They want yeah. the, they want people to read the content. And so this is the interesting thing about this particular phenomenon is on the one hand, it's on all of us to hold accountable media and social media companies when they are, in some cases, putting profits above the safety and, uh, and the security of their users uh, or their consumers in these ways. And, uh, and that's one of the sad things about this is that there were times, I think, where particularly social media companies could have done more to take some of this hateful content off of their platforms but didn't because it was profitable to keep it on. But if you're particularly vulnerable and susceptible to it, you're, you, you, you go tumbling down that rabbit hole. And before you know it, you're getting radicalized uh, you know, in chat rooms on Reddit and so on and so forth. And, and it doesn't end in good outcomes. 
what fascinates me the most, and I'm you know, 14 years um, detective, but I, I love this conversation, but at each one of these four commonalities, there is a, a sort of a, a political problem, there's a social problem, and, and but there's also a big news problem, isn't there? Particularly with, it, with this third one, because, you know, I, I have to hold my hands up and say, you know, my, my eldest son, who's 10, even he loves to see a good unsolved, you know, uh, unsolved mysteries that we watch on TV. I think it's, uh, I don't know what the answer is, but we are, as humans, we're fascinated around around crime and i think that then is a sort of uh, that circle is hard to hard to break it, it yeah it feeds the it, you know it's, to some degree it feeds the contagion effect of this which is depending on the outlet and the way it's done you could be causing more harm than good in some ways it's one of the reasons why for instance this podcast you know we want to be focused on the solution aspect right, in terms of like, what can actually people do to intervene with this phenomena versus the kind of like, let's dwell in the gory details and let's really, you know, sort of focus on the sort of, uh, some of the reporting on these mass shooters, for instance, was what they had for breakfast that day. You know, when, and it's well, like- that is a challenge though, James, because people love that. And that's they? the thing, they love that it. And you're like, but, but at the same time, like, do, do you think that was, you know, because he had McDonald's for breakfast, like, how, is that why he murdered, you know, yeah. his classmates that day? Like, of course it's not. But these are the sort of weird things that people fixate and fascinate with. And uh, and, and I think it's just about elevating that conversation in some ways. But, but you're right. Everybody's fascinated. It's celebrity watch. It's kind of this ongoing uh, phenomena that we have, and it and it plays out in those ways. And you know, and you don't have to say this for the research because this is going to be out public record. I'd hate for anyone to use this in a harmful way. But was there any particular mass murderer or event that your research said that people seem to gravitate towards that one? I know you mentioned Columbine and sort of changed the way, but maybe, maybe we don't mention the incident. But was there one which people seem to gravitate towards? Yeah, I mean, like I say, Columbine was definitely one that time and time again, people continue to reference and it becomes this sort of, uh, this, this phenomenon. There, there was even in a phenomenon called Columbiners. It's like a subculture online where people are referencing this phenomenon. So that was one that still stands out. And there were a couple of others, I'd say as well, that maybe people did reference more or gravitate toward. And sometimes that was just a byproduct of the location sometimes, but also the amount of media attention that it got. If it was a particular case that just got a lot of coverage, a lot of attention, it tended to then feed back into the cycle, broadly speaking. James, we've been going through the four things that mass shooters have in common with your research with Gillian Peterson. The first was experienced childhood trauma. Seconds reached an identifiable crisis. The third studied the actions of other shooters. And when we come back next week, we're going to look out the means to carry out the attack. And from two Brits on a podcast talking about firearms, this is going to get very oh, it's interesting. Good. It's going to be interesting. So, yeah, this, this is always the one that people um, like to hear. So, well, James, thank you for joining me again today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Simon. Well, wow, another great conversation with Dr. James Denzi, the co-founder of The Violence Project, discussing mass shooters. And one thing that I took away from that episode is that I'm going to start trying to not name the assailant when I present case studies in public, so I'm not giving them the fame and notoriety that they were seeking. And I'm really looking forward to sharing the final piece of the research with you, which is that mass shooters have access to firearms and then the means to commit their crimes, which is perhaps the most argued part of the Violence Project's research. 
So make sure you join me for that final episode. But before you leave me, if you are looking for dynamic online security trainings to grow your knowledge on how to stay safe and secure, please head over to the Worship Security Academy by clicking the link below and you'll find all our online church security offerings to help grow you as a leader. So that is it for now. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in that next episode. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you are looking for more information and training on how to keep you and your church safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my one-to-one mentoring program, please head over to courses.kingswoodsc.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I will be back with you on the next episode. But until then, stay safe, have a blessed week. And remember, always plan, prepare and protect. Thank you.